Welcome to the Present and Sober podcast with your hosts, Sam Goldfinch and Ellie Crow. If you want to make your life bigger, not smaller, then this is the podcast for you. If you can sense that you're destined for more and you're curious about how drinking could be holding you back, listen in and come on this journey with us. Through the interplay of mind and body practices, we will help you elevate your daily life and discover the wonder and potential of going alcohol free. Let's make life bigger together. I think I lived on canned salmon for two and a half years. Um, But the other thing that happened in those first days was that I had other inmates that my story was in the newspaper that was sitting in front of everybody in county. So they knew I was coming in with some resources. So I literally had maybe 60 women asking me for coffee in one morning. Happy Tuesday, lovely people. We've got something really different for you today. We've got Susan Joy back with us. Now, Susan's first episode was just unbelievable. She opened up for the first time about her experiences of going to prison after an accident that happened when she was driving under the influence of alcohol and the the, the deep impact it had on her life and the difficulties that came from it, but also the gifts that were unexpected and, and just how it changed the course of her life forever. And it was so well received and such an amazing episode. So do make sure you, you check that out. Today, we're going to take a, a deeper dive essentially into Susan's experience, lived experience of being in prison it was completely alien to her something that she didn't see coming in any way and she had to adapt and grow really quickly and it came with a lot of challenges and again a lot of gifts so um get excited about this one it was such an amazing conversation and uh, we're super super excited to to share this with you now thanks so much for the amazing reviews that you keep leaving for us team i just wanted to read one out for you because they they just make us smile so much so this one's from wendy it says uh i'm a huge fan of the present and sober podcast with ellie and sam They're not only my favourite birds, they're brilliant guides pointing and nudging us towards greater wisdom on a whole host of topics, not the least of which is the truth about alcohol. They're wise, relatable and warm and I look forward to every week's guest and their stories. Brilliant podcast. Wendy, thank you so, so much for that. It means so much to us to read those. So please, if you haven't, please go and leave us a review on Apple or Android or however you do that. It's uh, it's really helpful for spreading the word and it, and it, and it warms our hearts to read the impact that, that these conversations are having on you. So uh, yeah, awesome. I don't think there's anything else to say. There's a new Stay Stop solution coming up soon. So get your name on the wait list if you haven't already. It's in the show notes. But without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to me, Ellie and Susan. See you there. Here we go. We've Here got we go. another another special episode of the Present and Sober podcast with a returning guest. We've got the lovely Susan Joy with us again today. Hi, Susan. How hey, are you Susan. feeling? Hi, Sam. Hi, Ellie. I'm feeling good. The response to my first podcast was overwhelming. Mm. And I just want to say, first of all, thank you to everyone who listened and who commented with such kind words and support and gave me the encouragement to come back on this morning and talk some more. Mm -hmm. And we're so, yeah, we're so grateful to have you here. I think we were were all saying like the response to your episode was just phenomenal. So many messages from so many different places. And so it's it's a real, it was a real gift. And this is also going to be another fabulous episode that I'm sure is going to enlighten a lot of people. So uh, if, if you if you if you're not familiar with Susan, if you missed her episode and I don't know how you would have done that, but if you've missed it, go back to episode 47 and go and have a listen to to that 
uh, before, uh, well, please yourself, you can listen to this one first, but it might make more sense to go back to, uh, to the beginning where Susan shares her story. And it's a, it's a heart-wrenching episode. Make sure you have a tissue to hand. Um, so in, within that episode, we talked about Susan's episode of um, incarceration and one of the uh, one of the things that came up was a, a little flavor of the culture, um, prison culture. And there was this really interesting thing that stood out for me about how you can be in the depths of your suffering and yet it can it can transmute into something uh, so, something so, beautiful and 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 that it really stood out in how you I think you said something like uh I needed to figure out how to survive this and so you had this choice and you had the courage to take radical responsibility for your own experience and you you created something so fantastic so productive and of service to others and it just that that contrast, deep suffering to enormous personal spiritual growth, to me was just like it blew me away, and, and it felt like there was a whole episode there. And within that, another thing that stood out when you were talking to us um, with that original episode was um, this sort of uh, idea that there's us and them, and the dehumanizing aspect of some of the process and and that hurt my heart like big time to you know to, to have anybody feel less than and so what I would also really like to do in this episode is to be able to bring the the humanness back and to dispel some of the myths because look we, you know we don't often get a glimpse into prison I think some people are you know may have uh, an experience whether it's a, a personal experience to do with their personal life or work, whether it's to do with their work life, but it's, it's not something that a lot of us have much experience with. And so I'd really like to be able to dispel some of the myths and bring the humanness back to the, the subject. Um, so, so I'm really, really thankful to have you here again today, Susan. And uh, where, where feels like a good place to start? I think it makes sense to start after I was sentenced um, for, I was sentenced for vehicular assault. And in the courtroom that day, I talked about towards the end of the last episode that I was able to reconcile with the woman who I had hit and injured. And it was, you know, about eight months after the accident occurred that I was sentenced and she had had time to recover and listen to my words in the courtroom. And the ability to give her a hug and to know I was leaving my family and the, the regular outside world to head off for two and a half years, that gave me some peace in my mind and in my mm -hmm. heart. And it started me off with the sense that I was moving forward. I was no longer waiting, that waiting to find out if it was going to be one year or five years that I would be away was, was really, really hard. Mm. So at that point, 
I'm moving forward and I know what's coming. And just the, the sense of, I mean, I dressed like I was going to a job interview that day. You know, you want to look as nice as you can for an experience like that when you're going to speak. And the contrast of like wearing those clothes and then at the end of, you know, a rather formal proceeding, mm. the bailiff walks up and cuffs you. Mm. And there's this huge transition to everything is taken away from just like, you know, the skirt you were wearing, the jacket, the certain things you were hoping that you could take along with you. No, everything in my county was just taken away and you're put into a holding cell. And that's where it really all, all began. And I think for, for many people, they don't necessarily understand the distinction between jail and prison. And I know many people trying to become alcohol free have maybe experienced a DWI, DUI and spent a night in jail. And that is very different than prison. Jail is really more of a county level holding area where people that are facing longer sentences wait to go on to prison. And there's also people there that have had, you know, they spend the night overnight because of something that happened. They spend the weekend, those sorts of things. But for me entering that, I was almost in a weird sense, given some respect by other people in the county jail um, in the sense that I was going on to prison and mm-hmm. I had you know, been sentenced to two and a half years and I waited there for a month and acclimated myself to that situation before being transported. Mm. And like I said, it's just, it's very different. Prison is more like a city in and of itself where jail is you're in your own cell, you're let out occasionally. Um, There is a commissary where you can buy some supplies, but it was more getting my mind used to what I was gonna face Mm. at that point. I'd I'd say the one thing I realized, you know, when I did some research, I checked out what I could and what I was going to face. And I'd say the single most important asset as I'm thinking about this is your physical health, maintaining your Mm -hmm. physical first and secondly, your mental health. Mm -hmm. Because if something you need to take care of yourself, because if something happens to you on a physical level, level, the care is not the same as that you're going to receive in the outside world. So that was always in my mind that what can I do as far as nutrition, sleep, everything to to get me through what was to come. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think just the insight to, to do that beforehand was very insightful. Like, and, uh, yeah, I can, I can really see that. Like, I think, um, it's the, the connection between, um, physical health and mental health is so strong. Right. And Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily directly correlated, but so did you have a, what did physical health mean to you at the time? Like in what way did you sort of say to yourself, okay, I can Um, keep this up. I can do this. What, what, What are you doing? I, I've always been, a practitioner of yoga for a long time. And that took me through. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I was practicing yoga every day in my cell. Um, something we always have with us, no matter where we go and how much we're suffering is our breath. Mm. And I know both of you are, you know, into breath work and that sort of thing. Um, that sustained me at all times. Um, and as far as physical health, nutrition, the, as everybody probably presumes, the food is absolutely horrible. Um, there are no fresh fruits and vegetables, like very, very rare. Everything is canned. I mean, it's, it's really sad. Um, but there, there would be an occasional apple or, you know, some sort of something that would be healthy. And this is going to sound horrible, but I would often trade commissary that I could purchase for other people's apples that they weren't going to eat the fruit. Um, I, I would, you learn to barter. So I would let go of any treats or chocolates and take people's apples that would want to make a trade. Mm. Um, that's something that I continue to do. And, you know, I look back and I feel like, you know, was I really helping other people's nutrition? Probably not. But, you know, you reach a point where you're like, okay, how am I going to eat? And in my county, it was so strange. I was thinking back to this. They would bring us tons and tons of leftover McDonald's French fries. And I never, the county jail was next to a McDonald's. And I kept wondering, like, are these the fries that people are just, you know, not eating like where hmm. and you know just situations like that that you're like this is just incredible that this is happening but i would try to eat as well as i could under the circumstances yeah, yeah. really it really gets into the the under the level of understanding that's going on at society around the philosophy of what it is to rehabilitate versus punish and i'm sure we'll i'm sure we'll talk to this later but yeah just this idea that it's okay to like malnourish anyone mm-hmm. when what we want to do is bring people back into society mm-hmm. so they can help be helpful so they can you know perhaps give in a way that they've never done before and have some insights mm-hmm. that make them positive members of the community and yet we're going to do something that we know is probably one of the most damaging things we can do to anyone which is malnourished people like mm-hmm. like it's crazy to me because yeah. I get it I get that we, like it's a really it's important to keep society safe and to have a way of, you know, for violent crime, for example, like, of course, like there's, but everybody is doing what makes sense to them at their current level of understanding. And that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, have a society where people can do some terrible things, but it does mean that we can have compassion even when people have done those terrible things to know that they weren't created in a vacuum. And like your story, Mm -hmm. Susan, like, I mean, to say that you didn't see it coming and it could happen to anyone, I mean, goodness, like punish, like, I'm not sure how, yeah, I'm sure we'll get back around to that, but just that, that just immediately, I'm so sure, how painful is it to like, to see that, that we're doing that to people? Yeah, it, and what also happens in, in the county jail and in prison everybody is looking at the new person that comes in and what can they give me? I mean, as bad as that sounds, they want to know who comes in with money. And I, in terms of money, I mean, the ability to buy on commissary is everything. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm talking, my ex-husband would give me like $50 a month and that would make me prison rich. Like he would max out my account and I was able to buy myself coffee. I was able to purchase like a can of salmon. I think I lived on canned salmon for two and a half years. Um, but the other thing that happened in those first days was that I had other inmates that my story was in the newspaper that was sitting in front of everybody in county. So they knew I was coming in with some resources. So I literally had maybe 60 women asking me for coffee in one morning. Wow. And how, how do you handle that? And I think there's a tale of boundaries in all this too, because you quickly learn that you cannot take care of everybody. Mm. There's no way. And the biggest thing I had read beforehand is don't give things away and don't take things. Keep to yourself and do your time. And as much as, you know, these people's stories are horrible, you just, you can't supply everybody first of all. But I, I did learn, like, you can listen to them, you can give them space to talk. And it's amazing how many people just wanted to tell me their story. Mm. And, but that was hard at first. I mean, I wanted to buy coffee for everybody and let's all hang out. But yeah. it, you, you just, you can't. And that, ha that continues to happen as you go through the system where you're able to get a little bit more and you have people constantly asking for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Ellie mentioned radical responsibility. And the thing about that is we can only take radical responsibility for our stuff, our feelings, yeah. our internal world and yeah. the over responsibility, you know, that yes. many of us have, that many of us carry, um, even in the, as coaches, you know, it's something that we all have our own journey with. And I mean, to learn that in that space, it must have been a huge thing to learn, but but to be able to share that with people because it, it's a lesson that's applicable everywhere, right? The over over responsibility thing and trying to, yeah, because the thing is, if we all turned inward and we all took responsibility for our stuff, truly, the world would change overnight. You know, one hundred percent. If we stop trying to change the world to make ourselves feel okay, and realize that the answer to being okay is through, like you've said. Susan, through yoga, through the true meaning of yoga, unity with who we really are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's amazing that you knew that from the word go. And I'm sure that was so much of that was down to your yoga practice, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is taking care of the body, but it's also the mind in terms of I found, I found books right away. And someone I stumbled upon early on, there's always books, which is a wonderful resource for people going through this. And I stumbled upon the work of Byron Katie mm -hmm. and devoured her book. And I would say the lessons from her experience took me through a lot of my own, that the idea that suffering truly happens when we're trying to fight reality, when we're trying to fight what is. And what is was I was in a cell. I was waiting to go to prison. I couldn't change that. I, I spent a long time when I was waiting for my sentencing, comparing 
my crime to other people's crimes and saying, how the heck did this person get this amount? And I did this after I was sentenced too. like, here I am with two and a half years. And, you know, I remember reading about an airline pilot um, to give you a sense of where my mind was at times that had flown in a major airline under the influence and had, you know, tested over 0.08 on his blood alcohol content. And he received about a year. And, you know, here's me going to, um, how is he flying an entire, you know, load of people across the sky and got one year? I mean, you could dive into other people's sentences and wear yourself out thinking about why, why, why. And I just had to accept you're doing two and a half years. You know, this is what you got. There was a reason. Let it go. Move on. Do you remember when that happened? That moment where you finally let go to it? Or was it a gradual? It was, I'd say it was gradual because I can remember I mean, I think part of me doing that research before I was sentenced was trying to get a better hand on what I would get. Mm-hmm. So I looked up every vehicular assault case, every vehicular homicide case. And then when I got sentenced and knew my time, I let go of it some in county, but our first day in prison, first or second day, they had an attorney meet with all of us. And we got very official papers about our sentencing. And everybody in that room was doing the comparison thing. And it was also who was on a mandatory sentence and who was going to be able to apply for early release. And I was mandatory and I would be sitting near someone that had robbed a bank that was not mandatory. So yeah, yeah, that brought me back to that comparison, but then it was a slowly, slow, gradual letting go of that as the experience went on. But I'd say that was an example where I had to bring my mind back to the present moment. And Mm. it is what it is. Acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Acceptance. So that was really one month in county. And then I was transferred to prison and I was hearing from inmates in county what prison was going to be like because some had been there. So I knew a little bit of what to expect. And in some ways, I hoped it would get better because prison was supposed to have more structure, more, you know, quote unquote, freedom to walk around more and do more things. So I was transferred and sentenced in May, transferred sometime in June. And I remember it was an extremely hot day. And transfer is one of the hardest things, I think, to go through because you are cuffed and you are your legs are shackled. Mm -hmm. And no one cares if you've gone the bathroom before you get on the bus Mm. and the driver is completely separated with air conditioning and you're all just thrown in the back. There are about five of us going and you're just thrown in the back of a van and you're transported. And I think I talked in the first episode um, of when we did make one stop and having other people just stare at me. Mm. You know, but we were given one chance to stop and use the restroom, get back in the van. It was about a, I want to say two hour drive. I was in Marysville, Ohio, which is the main women's prison in Ohio for all crimes. And we arrived there and you get to this huge gate. And I remember we just sat in the van and I guess there's a lot of paperwork they have to do from county level to prison level. 
and they did not crack the windows and we had no AC. And that, that scared me because I knew I was dehydrating. We had no access to water on the trip. I knew my anxiety level, my talk about fight or flight response Mm -hmm. in full Mm -hmm. gear. You know, we were probably in that van 45 minutes to an hour heating up and then we're let out and entered admissions, which is the hardest part of prison. You're just thrown into, and I guess the best way I can describe it is a giant gymnasium with steel bunk beds, one after another, after another, after another. And you're given, well, first off, I should say you go through that whole, um, dehumanizing strip search process because they want to make sure you're not bringing any drugs in. You're not bringing anything in, but yourself. So you're completely, you wait in line. I think that's when you get really good at waiting in lines in prison, but you wait in a really long line. I mean, this took half the day of getting people through admissions, um, through stripping down your, all your clothes are taken away. You're, you're stripped to nothing. You are forced to, um, you know, and I'll be graphic here, but you have to bend over and cough because people, they want to make sure every cavity of your body is free of drugs. That's their main objective, not to bring drugs into the prison. And then at that point you are, you see someone and this is, I think one of my other strategies I've realized about myself is I bring humor to really bleak situations because it's the only way I can survive. But one of the steps was categorizing people's tattoos. Like they had to basically record every tattoo on someone's body. And you're in this huge line. And the person in front of me was just covered in tattoos. (laughs) And I'm like, this is going to take a long time. And we're talking, you know, a lot of people because other counties are coming in as well. So we do that. They get to me for the tattoo. Never had a tattoo. Literally, they did not believe me. They're like checking everywhere. Honest, no tattoos here. You know, (laughs) but but yeah, they're in. They were kind of joking with me at that point. Like, how did you end up here? You know, people do recognize that I, I didn't quite fit in. Um, so we get through that. Then we are doused with lice shampoo, which you smell like lice shampoo for three weeks after you are doused with it. And it's not pleasant on your skin. It's not, it's not a Veda for sure. Um, it's nasty. And after that, you're given pretty much what you take with you, your bedding and, uh, your prison uniform and, um, those things. And you're thrown into the general population, which by that point, I was just compl- exhausted, worn mm-hmm. out. I knew the heat situation hadn't been good for me. I was starting to feel dizzy and like, okay, I just gotta, I gotta get through this. I'm worried I'm going to pass out. Um, we did sit down for a while, then get a lot of information. And then we're sent to our, our bunks which I remember walking down that row of bunks and having everybody that was already living there looking, staring at you, like, here come the new people. What do we got here? Mm -hmm. And having about 
10 women rush over offering to make my bed and show me how a prison bed is made. And I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. And me just saying, no, I got this, you know, keeping to myself. I I don't want to get involved with anybody, you know, do my own thing, figure this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a little bit about getting into admissions and getting through that. Can I just ask you, Susan, like at every step of this, there's just, uh, you you must need such resilience and grit because you're you're like, your nervous system is short. Yeah. Emotionally, what's going on? You know, even I loved what you said about bringing humor. I mean, this is part of the with the reason that we um, enjoy the podcast so much because we're bringing lightness where we can to you know some really difficult subjects. And I find I find humor and the lightness like it's essential. But even so, it's it's this extraordinary. Um, period of time like it's a big expanse of time you are physically emotionally shot your nervous system's completely dysregulated like dysregulated like how how you like I guess the answer is you don't have any choice like your your entire freedom's taken away from you don't have any choice but to get through it Mm -hmm. but I just I look at you and I just think like it's it's formidable like and, and I know from my own experience of things that when I look back on tough things that I've been through in my life, I think, how the hell did I do that? How the hell did I get through that? And yet we do. But it, it's still um, like it, it doesn't happen in isolation. There, did, did you feel that there was some residue from that that you had to, you had to, move on through somehow for sure um yeah I mean we can get to that too towards I mean I took a lot of that with me but you you do get through it both of you would get through it you have no choice and in the back of your mind I mean you have your picture of your children that you have to do this. And that day we went to, they gave us food at some point, water. We got that. And I, at that point, I felt like I was going to, going to pass out and asked for help in the cafe, in the chow area and was told just to sit back down. I said, I think I have heat stroke or heat exhaustion from the trip. And there was no, and I, I, ended up vomiting on the cafeteria floor and continued to be sick that night. And at that point, I honestly, I grew up Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I've always had an envision of a higher power being God. And that night I really turned it over to him and said, I need you to help me have my health back by the morning. I've done what I can. I've hydrated you sleep all night with bright, bright lights on you. I, I just, at that point, I, I was afraid I was either going to wake up and not make it because of my physical health 
or I was going to wake up and it was going to be okay. And somehow I believe at that point, God did intervene. And I, I vomited most of that night, but I woke up in the morning and having slept two hours or so. And I felt like I could do it. I felt better. It felt like the water had worked. Something intervened at that point because I was, that's the most scared I was for my own safety and my own health was right there. And then from that point onward, I felt like I slowly got stronger physically from that, the point of that heat exhaustion or whatever it was. And I was on my way to, yeah, yeah, just shock and everything. Um, but that was probably the, the scariest, scariest time. And I think too, one of the things I was most scared of was random violence in prison. And I think maybe people think that that happens, but it really, it really doesn't. If you keep to yourself, um, people that, I mean, you can imagine a bunch of women put together like that and that kind of situation with everyone's nervous system dysregulated, the mm-hmm. kind of drama that goes on. Mm-hmm. It's just mainly staying out of that. But mm-hmm. I did witness in admissions at least five physical fights a day where you slowly become immune to that, which I, what does that say about to the point where, you know, six months down the line, I remember reading a book at one point and on my bunk in the area I ended up in and another fight going on and me almost being like, well, this chapter is really good. I need to finish it. Like not paying attention to violence that anybody else would be just appalled by. But I had seen it so many times that it, I was becoming immune to it in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I did get moved out of admissions after a month and found my regular living area. And I was with a lot of people that were doing life in prison for homicide. Um, it was not, a, and some of my friends were shocked by that. Like, why are you, people aren't really divided by their crime. I, I actually ended up in a pretty good living spot. And the people that are in there for a while doing life, they know how to do it. They know how to, I had a few help me in terms of what to get involved in, what not to get involved in. Yeah, I think you said yeah. in the last podcast, Susan, that it's actually, you know, that's actually where you want to be with the people that are, effectively you know going to be there for for the rest of their lives or a long long time because they're not yes. um what 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 do you make of that what do you think is that because hmm, yeah what do you make of that i mean part of it is that they want to forge a good relationship with the correctional officers hmm. that are running the unit which we call co's because they realize they're going to be there a long time. They want to live their best life in prison and not be, you know, you do stupid things and the COs just take everything away from you. And no one wants that. No one wants to go to commissary, buy supplies and then have that stripped of you. So they're, and they, they want to go to bed at 10 o'clock, even though the lights are always on, they want to read books. They want, when I, got in there, there was one woman that had a sign on her bunk. I'll socialize again after this week. Olympics are on. 
and you do have access to a television after you've been in there a while. So she wanted to enjoy the Olympics. That was her thing. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't want, you know, the 19 year old in the next bunk getting TV taken away or, you know, and at, at holidays at Thanksgiving, they organized a whole list where certain people got certain things at commissary and all we had was microwaves, but they cooked a Thanksgiving feast involved a lot of macaroni and cheese, (laughs) but, um, yeah, they, and they want to take advantage of the gym, of the library, of the programs. Mm -hmm. And no one talks about what anybody else is in for, which is interesting. So not just themselves, but actually no one, there's no one else is talking about everybody else in there as well. Okay. Right. Right. Like it would be very rude to ask someone why they are there. Yeah. This is interesting, right? The kind of like, I guess, unwritten code or the kind of culture that's, that's going or the subcut that and the, Ellie's going to laugh when I use the word here. Like we're talking about bricolage, like the things that go, like, so the things that we associate with the culture, be them objects or unwritten code or how, how did you find your way into that? Were you just observing? Were there certain people that really kind of gave you an initiation as such that you bonded with? Were there, you know, what was, what was that journey like? Yeah. A lot of it honestly is just common sense Mm. and I think bringing your intelligence with you and being, I mean, I worked as a therapist for a number of years and think I'm a pretty good observer of people and it's what to do and what not to do. Like, I mean, just for an example, you wait in line to take a shower and there's only so many showers and you're not going to get in the shower and take 15 minutes, you know, soaping up and taking your time and, you're going to get in there and out and be respectful that there's someone behind you in line that also wants to get a shower. Yeah. If just the, you know, and when it's your turn to clean that you're going to do a good job cleaning and that you understand mm-hmm. people you are living with deserve that respect. Um, you're not going to be noisy at night. You're going to use your earphones. If you're, if you do have a television, so you, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. So you're not listening to 40 different televisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's, you know, taking radical responsibility for for your journey, but part of that being accepting that, you know, you're in a community and there are other people yeah. there who also have boundaries. And, you know, if, you, if you're going to break those boundaries, then you're going to cause friction that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want ultimately, right? Right. right. Mm, yeah. Well, I guess the emotional intelligence that you went in with, Susan, would have was incredibly useful then. Like it was a real, because I guess if you're somebody who has been a reactive person who enjoys friction, then you're going to have a lot more of that in that scenario, right? Yeah. And there are, I mean, I always get questions on, you know, relationships in prison and everyone thinks that's going on all the time. And it does to a certain extent, but you don't have to be drawn into that. And I think some of it is more not so much a sexual thing, but, uh, people are looking for human companionship and there's more of a girlfriend, girlfriend thing with, I'll be your friend. I'll take care of you. You know, that sort of bonding, but that's better just to stay away from all of that because just the drama is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
across that, you know, and I mean, we could, you know, there's so much, there's so much, I'm sure, so much we could explore across those years that you were there, but mm-hmm. what are the standout things that you learn or that you had with you or the tools or, you know, both kind of, you know, what are the things that you would love to share with people that we could uh, talk about here? Um, I think really first I'd, I'd say something and want to talk about my relationship with my children during this time and visits because mm-hmm. visits were, I mean, I was two and a half hours, I'd say away from my home and my husband at the time was willing to bring the children, but they didn't come often for there's such a love hate relationship with visits because obviously I wanted to see my children and I'll never forget the first time he brought them and the embarrassment, the shame, the having my daughter sit on my lap. And I just remember like smelling the scent of her hair and knowing again, I was going to have to say goodbye it was extremely difficult. But then on the flip side, there was also that guilt of, I want them to visit as much as they can, but it would drain me for days after they had left, if that makes any sense at all. Because part of what you do is compartmentalize where I knew both my children were safe I knew they were being cared for and then I had to let it go. So they visited me twice while I was in Marysville and it was, it was hard. It was good, but it was hard. And I also had my parents come visit me, which is a level of discomfort, shame. I mean, you want to think about your parents coming to your college graduation, not to visit you in prison but they were there to support me and it was important for them to see that I was okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, I think going through something that hard, you do have to somewhat compartmentalize to not be constantly thinking of what you're missing with your children and, um, knowing that I would be, out after a certain amount of time and I could I could resurrect that relationship it's um it it, it's it's just so bittersweet isn't it because I can imagine that like that that desperation to to see them and to hold them and to smell them and to Mm -hmm. be with them but as you say then that you're right back at the beginning of the like I've got I've got to see them walk away again and yes that I can I can just imagine as you say that how long that takes to work through and I I couldn't imagine any any other way as you say compartmentalizing because if you stayed in that stuck place that that would just pull you under so for that period, just after visitation, what would you do to, because it, it sounds like there's a lot of allowing there. You allowed it to be mm-hmm. as it was. And then coming back to acceptance, was there, 
there anything specific within that process that helped you? I really, I did a lot of walking meditation almost where we could walk a track and part of what was hard was you were never alone. Like there's absolutely no solitude in prison. You're always around a lot of other people, but for some reason walking, I could tune things out and just mm. get into my breath um, and focus on the here and now. And I guess too, I was thinking coming on today, it gives you a chance. Like imagine being without a cell phone for two and a half years. Imagine walking and it would, it was coming to be fall and I love autumn and the leaves were changing and just stopping and noticing the leaves and you have all the time in the world. So you can, you can look at the leaves and feel the breeze for an hour. Or I remember watching squirrels. There were so many squirrels in there because I think people were feeding them little snacks and just enjoying watching the squirrels. And I mean, I forget, you know, now today I'm all caught up in my phone and everything else. When do we go outside and take time with my dog to watch squirrels? And just Mm -hmm. that message, maybe I can give people today of slowing down and recognizing what's truly important and grounding myself to nature. Mm -hmm. You could take your shoes off and put your feet in the grass and the grass is the same inside as it is outside. Yeah. Talk about a perspective machine, right? I, um, yeah, that's, do you know, it's really funny. That was one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask you was, because I think it could be really easy, I guess, to talk about, you know, the stuff that's going on in prison that we really should be doing something about because it's not helping people come back and, and, and be positive, you know, and it's it's creating this hamster wheel, I think, as you described it in the first podcast, but you know, the positive stuff around, you know, to have those things like taken away, but then to realize that, oh, actually, you know, there's a, there is a, there is kind of like a burden is the wrong word, but there's a weight that comes with a lot of the stuff that we carry with us every day as well. And to have seen that, like the turn of the seasons and to watch it day by day and like to be, to realize the, the beauty and the interest in watching something like that, which, which is like, you know, with Netflix and, all this kind of stuff, like who's going to sit and watch the leaves change color, (laughs) but actually like, it's wonderful. It's an incredible thing. Um, Mm. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful message. I really, that was going to be my biggest question. You've answered it without me asking. So that's really cool. And I think I, I never counted days. Um, And it's Mm. funny. I never counted days on my becoming (laughs) alcohol free. I couldn't tell you how many days I have. And I think part of that is my resistance to AA and my resistance to counting days in prison, but I would go with the change of seasons. And I remember telling myself, I got out in November of 2014 and I knew when autumn hit again. So I was very attuned to the seasons that I knew I would be getting out in autumn and, you know, enjoying the snow. I remember lying in the yard, they called it, and just letting the snowflakes hit my face mm-hmm. and just trying to enjoy the little things that you can. And there, there was a weight lifted in some ways, like you said, Sam, Mm. 
How interesting. Yeah. The burdens of the outside world in many ways are taken away and you're forced to slow down. It's really interesting. I felt it because um, when you were describing going into admissions, uh, I felt the, the pain of, of that experience. But at the same time, it, it reminded me of an echo of being like being in an ashram and handing everything over at the bit or like not taking anything with you and just being free to just go. It's just me in my clothing right now, which, you know, and, and I think it just goes to show that actually whatever our circumstances are, it's, we don't have to be a victim of them. Like there is something we can learn. There is something that we can take from it, however difficult it might be. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's amazing that you found that. And I guess it, it, it comes from dropping the resistance. And uh, yeah, that's really special. That's really cool. And then that sort of takes us to, I got, I got transferred to closer to Cleveland and was able to see my children maybe once every other month. And then was in the dog program and did some mm-hmm. of my yoga teaching and was able to establish, cause that's considered an, um, a less, less security as far as prison goes and just getting into the, I was there the rest of my time of the structure of it, of having a job of showing that I could, you know, do what needed to be done. And as the longer you're in there, you do make connections. You got to be careful who you make connections with, but I ended up um, working for the psychiatrist there doing office cleaning at one point. And he was a wonderful connection, an older man and just so kind and um, was able to talk to him. And he um, loved dogs and I would, I would bring the puppy in and he, he, when I would, had my puppy and he would bring in outside dog toys, which was like contraband. That's the only contraband <laughs> I brought into prison was dog bones and dog toys. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it got easier over, over the long run. Um, yeah. And that took me to 2014 when I was looking at my release date. And how did that feel? Scary. Um, I had to know where I was going. And at this point I have, you know, we know we're getting divorced. Uh, he did not divorce me while I was in prison and I'm forever grateful for that. Cause that would have been extremely difficult for me to represent myself through a divorce process. Yeah. And he wasn't going to at first, but did, did allow me to come back to our home. And we talked and he said, you know, I'm going to give you a month or so to find living arrangements I could have, at that point, I could have fought for my house. I could have fought for full custody of both my children. My oldest daughter was in college at that point. And my youngest daughter, Sarah, was in sixth grade. And I came home. I remember that day he he did pick me up and brought me back to the house. And I, I think he left for like four days. And I was just with the kids again, um, which was wonderful. 
but also I couldn't drive for two, two, three more years because my license was taken away. So that, and we were in a suburb. So there was a lot to adjust to. And imagine Sarah was 10 years old. No, it was like third grade to sixth grade. And all of a sudden her mom is plopped back into the living room. It just huge adjustment. And I think this comes back to, again, not resisting what is, because at that point she had formed a a bond with my ex-husband that I completely understood, Mm. you know, and that it was really hard because I almost felt in a way like a stranger in my own home Yeah, and had to take it very slow with both my children. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, that was hard. I remember going to, she was into volleyball and we went to a volleyball tournament and um, she got, and we drove together and she, I don't know, got hit with the ball or something happened. And she was just, you know, crying little sixth grader, 12, 13 years old and immediately ran off the court and hopped into her dad's lap, not mine. Mm. And, you know, at the time it made me want to cry, honestly, it, that it was really hard. Mm. It was, but I needed to understand what had happened and that, she would slowly come around to me again. And of course she did, but it took time. It took a lot of time. I moved out into a condo. She had a room there where we decorated it and we made it all fancy for her, but she didn't want to leave the house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had some judgment from friends of, well, why didn't you force her? You know, why didn't you take him to court for full custody? You know, it would have been a battle if you knew my ex of he wanted to control things and I had done what I had done. So again, I accepted, I would have her on weekends. I would, he traveled a lot still for his work and I would stay at the house when he traveled and take care of everything. And we cooperated and I give, you know, I give both of us credit for that. We did what was best for our two children Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. I, I love that you had that um, in a in a compass. So because it would be so easy to listen to other people, and it would be so easy to fall into that mechanism of trying to control things and, and change things and have it be different. And in all likelihood, that disconnection there'd be even greater disconnection. Like I can just imagine trying to force a soon to be teenager to be in a situation that doesn't feel safe to them. And I, and I don't mean any judgment in that. I just mean like it, 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 it's, it's a wrench from what, what they've known for such a period. So whilst like emotionally you've had to not take on a lot, but, you've, but you, in that allowing that's that's exactly what bridges that connection but it's to have the patience to allow that to unfold in its own time as opposed to trying to force it and that that grasping that clinging that 
that craving, that tension. You know, we talk so much about how awareness is just such a beautiful gift because it opens up, it opens up choice and we're empowered. And what we see so frequently is, and, and myself included in this, you have the awareness and then it's like, all oh, right, and, I, and I've got to fix this. I've got to change this. I have to do something. And more often than not, there's nothing to do, but it can be so challenging to include whatever the thing is, to include all of the feelings and the experience. And this is why I, the, the lady that I was talking um, about before we came on to record, who you'll be in touch with soon. I was saying to her, like, this lady, Susan, she she's like nobody I've ever met before. And, and I don't know where she's going, but she's, something big's going to happen with her because to, to have that, to have that, um, and, and I guess it's, it's, it's a bit different because we're, we're talking about some of this, some of your story in like, we haven't got the whole context. We're not living through the, the entire experience, but you, you just seem to be very, very grounded and very like, even when all of your freedoms taken away from you and you're put in the most terrific conditions, like I, I may have, I feel a bit silly. I didn't realize that the lights are on all the time, how anybody can sleep with the lights on all the time. All, all, all of this stuff that is, you know, it, it's like torture. And yet you found the present moment and you could accept, you could include all of this stuff and you could allow it to be there. And because there's no resistance anymore, there's such, such beauty available in the most challenging, horrific circumstances. And so I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just delighted to be able to spend any time with you at all. And um, I know you'd be helping so many people already, but I just, there's, I'm prophesizing this, there's some, something big's going to happen with you. And I'm just, it, I'm just so excited. I'm so excited to see what, what's next for you. Thank you, Holly. That means a lot. And yeah, it took a while to rebuild relationships. And it's funny, we talked about dogs and the part they've played in my story. And I have two golden retrievers now. Maggie is five and a half. And when Sarah was in eighth grade, so two years after I got out, we got Maggie together in a second condo I was in. And I really used Maggie and the whole experience of getting the puppy. It was a wonderful bonding time for my daughter and I, and my ex-husband had said no more dogs, you know, they're not having a dog. Mom can get a dog. And so that brought us together and it slowly, it just, then she got her driver's license. And again, I did not um, rush her in terms of being over my place all the time. We let her, where you want to stay is where you want to stay. You have rooms at both of our places. And now to bring it full circle, I have an eight-week-old eight puppy in the bedroom that Sarah and I picked out um, just a couple weeks ago when she was home for Easter break for college. And she'll be home later this week. 
for the summer. She's done classes and yeah, we have a wonderful relationship now and been to her college several times this year for visits and she's so proud of what I'm doing and of me telling my story mm-hmm. and my ability to talk to her about alcohol and what it can do and the fact that you know it took everything from me but it wasn't until I truly saw that it didn't help me relax it didn't help me deal with any of this and I found this naked mind that I found true freedom from that substance because we really we didn't really get into today but I had talked at the last episode of when I was going through of some of my feelings of sadness with, with my children and all of that, I started to like have that glass of wine at night to numb that. Cause that's mm-hmm. what I had known. And I never drink, I never drank and drove again, but I, I was using it at times to numb mm-hmm. and to truly be away from all that now since 2020 has been, has made me help me look at this and realize through I did the path. And I remember opening up on the first time with coach Carla Atkins and who had her own experience. In fact, she called me yesterday after listening to the podcast and I related to her like I had never related to anyone because of what she went through and her story. There's such different stories, but there's a level of shame that we just could relate. And I opened up to her for the first time on the path. Mm. Yeah. Well, yes. and, and, and there's another wonderful human being. Carla's a, a, I'm a big fan of Carla too. She's a, an amazing lady and she's like, she's lined up as well to come on and yeah. talk to us soon. She's got some super exciting stuff going on too. I know. I know. Um, well, hey, like, um, yeah, I don't know. There was just a, such a, me and Ellie had such curiosity to, to chat with you about this. And um, overwhelmingly, I'm just hit with the wisdom of like throughout all of that, no matter how difficult it got, it feels like you could see that life wasn't happening to you. It was happening for you and by you and through you. And that is such a powerful message to have with you. And um, like Ellie said, I'm sure it's going to, that energy is, is no doubt going to have such an amazing effect on people. And we're, we're so um, humbled and happy that you, you came and started this, you know, you came and shared your story in full, like you said, here with us. And um, yeah, honestly, it's, that's a real privilege. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time that we all sit down and have a chat together. <laughs> I know there's, there's so much to talk about and yeah. So, Hey, you know, you, you, you shared a bit about how people can reach out and contact you on the last podcast. Like there was your, your website and you spoke about, but is there anything you want to just remind people of how to, to reach out if anything here in particular is, has resonated with them or what's going on or is anything, you know, let us know that stuff. Really um, hop on my website, susanjoycoaching.com. And take a look. I started a blog. I need to work more on that. I've I've been certified since December of last year. So I'm really just getting my business going. And I'm not a huge social media person. But when my daughter is home, she has promised 
to help me with that and <laughs> get me going on Instagram and all that those is, things. That's what you need. Um, I know I need it. Um, but yeah, so that'll be up and coming and I have accounts and, but mainly my website now, anyone's welcome that wants to chat to reach out for a discovery call and yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fascinating and wonderful and, oh, it's, I, I just really appreciate you and that, that power of sharing story and uh, being able to connect with our, all, all of our humanness. I think it's mm. just, it's so important. Thank you. Thank you. There's just so much to take away from that. And what an incredible woman Susan is to, uh, to have not only grown and adapted, but to have helped people the way that she did through that. And, uh, and through that, just the impact that, that uh, Susan is, Susan is going to have, I'm sure, is going to be absolutely huge. So anything you can do to, to spread the word and share this around for people to tune into, please do share it. Share it wherever makes sense to you, because I think a lot of people will be impacted by Susan's words. Have a truly amazing week and see you next week.